The Athletic. Just to let you know before we get started, the following episode contains explicit language from the off and has content some listeners may find upsetting. In the morning of 24th of, of the February, we walked up after the sounds of bombs. We don't really sleep three days without sleep. This is a very difficult question. My, my wife's father, he died. Oh. They killed him. To these players, football is still significant. And today we can be proud because this victory is for Ukrainian people, for Ukrainian citizens. Right now, the energy and the spirit that has to be so strong in this change room, that if a guy walks in with a light bulb, it will fucking burst. When I go to window, I see how it can be when like Armageddon, you know. Shakhtar's academy is now based out of a hotel in Split in Croatia, and that's where I'm going. I miss my parents and our academy. I really want to go back to Ukraine. I had the little one and I went away to cry. Putin bad. What do you think? It's true. Everybody believes that uh, we are one uh, football family. FIFA don't, don't care about us. With that, he said, I don't know how to tell you, but our Vitaly is no more. After months of relative calm, terror has returned to the streets of Kiev. And actually, bomb was uh, shooted right in the car traffic. Even worse, they drive the kids at, at the school. We were really scared for our lives and for lives of our relatives. This fucking bastard from Russia think that we will stop to play because of that. We will stop to play. We'll play and we'll win. What were your emotions in that 96th minute when the goal went in? And this is football. We really disappointed with one point. It might seem slightly peculiar that any football continues in Ukraine in this week of all weeks, where rockets hit their main cities. We are not afraid of all these attacks. We still live and we work. The equation for Shakhtar is very simple. They must beat Red Bull Leipzig in Warsaw to qualify for the final 16 of the Champions League. We fight on the pitch, like them fight on the front for the freedom. Leipzig score a third and then a fourth. It's a drubbing. Tough situation because Many times you training with sirenas, with alerts, and you must think about shelters and the bunkers. But that's why this is a bonus for us. Europe League, it's amazing work. Really, the football helped me to escape the war. Ukrainians could kick the Russians out of every inch of, of Ukraine, but I've never thought they would. To, to play in Donbass Arena, once again, it's, it's a dream for, for many, many, many people. For The Athletic, I'm Adam Crafton. We've been following Shakhtar Donetsk on their Champions League odyssey through all six group stage matches. We've been to Warsaw, Glasgow, Madrid, Leipzig and to Split in Croatia, covering every aspect of this nomadic club. They need to run indoors and hide between two walls. Main wish is just to have a peaceful sky. This is Away From Home, episode six. The road ahead isn't easy. And for the first time this series, 
I'm in the studio with Joey Durso. Hi, Adam. And we're in London to reflect on Shakhtar's story in the Champions League. Later on, we'll be joined by Jakub Paraszynski from the Kiev Independent and the Powerlines podcast to learn more about Ukraine's relationship with sport during this war. But we also have a third guest in the studio, and that's producer Abby. Hello. Yes, I'm going to be playing the role perhaps of the listener in this and some of the questions that might have come up whilst people have been listening to this series and really trying to get a little bit behind the scenes of how this podcast has been made. And I think the first question is really, how on earth did we get access into Shakhtar Donetsk, Adam? Yeah, so this all started back in February or March where we as The Athletic, we just did a written piece with some players from the Shakhtar team some players from other clubs in Ukraine that was actually mostly focusing on the foreign players that had left the country at the time because it was like quite a dramatic escape for those players. But off the back of that, the Shakhtar communications officer, Yuri Spiridov, he sent me a text which was basically saying, Adam, it's a fucking nightmare here and please don't stop reporting about us until the war is over. And that kind of stayed with us. And then once Ukrainian football restarted in the summer and we knew that they were going to be in the Champions League, we'd always at the Athletic wanted to do something with a club during the Champions League group stage. And we were very, very fortunate that when we pitched to them the idea, they completely went for it. A lot of people might think, well, if it's a Shakhtar project, they're going to want to have final say on what goes out. We see it all the time with things like All or Nothing, The Last Dance, any of those series where the sport club is the subject. Adam, has that been the case here? No, it's not. And I suppose it speaks in some ways for kind of the the desperation of the current situation at the club, because ordinarily a club in the Champions League would want a huge amount of control over anything that's being produced, particularly in a competition where TV companies are paying billions of pounds for the television rights and are creating their own kind of documentaries and series. But I, I think Shakhtar trusted us, but also I think they saw the potential of giving that increased visibility, that engagement that might ordinarily be difficult to get with certain sports fans, but when it's made more relatable, when it becomes more human, through the lens of footballers, that that there was a way to access and engage different people. Hmm. Joey, you came into the, the process a little bit later on down the line. Did that surprise you that Shakhtar weren't like this hawk watching everything you were doing? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think usually when you work with football clubs, particularly in England, they're very controlling. They're, they're, they micromanage. You certainly don't just get to chat to players the night before a Champions League match in the hotel. This is very unusual to be just just chatting to these people casually. I think desperation is the right word. They want the world to know. And you know if that means that something gets into a podcast which they might not have be ideally worded that that's fine you know it was very, they were very easy to deal with very relaxed to deal with but it was funny for example so there's a video trailer and if you've only listened to this podcast then you can find that video trailer if you just go on twitter and type in away from home podcast and it shows the the team talk that you hear in episode two where the captain tara stepanenko is addressing his players and I showed this to Shakhtar just because we'd had the video ready and I thought it was quite cool and I thought they'd like to see it. And then part of me thought, oh God, I've just shown them a video that's got a load of swearing in it, that it's got the captain saying, you know, we're going to beat this team, we're better than this team, maybe they'll be a bit nervous about that. And they did. They came back with one change and it was just like a minor translation thing. But no, really, I mean, they, they put a lot of trust in it. And even the interviews that were 
some of them with executives on the morning of games. Sometimes it would be around like breakfast or dinner. It was very, very relaxed, letting us fly with them for the first game. So, so all of that made it a far more enjoyable experience. I think we also benefited from Yuri, the press officer, was quite laid back. Yeah, I was going to say a real unspoken hero of this podcast, yeah. Yuri. Very pleasant to deal with. Very, always wanting, trying to facilitate things rather than block them. Do you think maybe we were helped quite a bit by that shock result in Germany on the first match day? Obviously, if you're listening to this episode now, you know how this thing ends and it's a kind of a happy ending Europa League, but there was a point at which it looked like it was going to be even even better. And that amazing win in Leipzig on match day one. I mean, I don't think anyone saw that coming. The story also kind of paralleled the war, you know, as we hear from Irina in first episode. It was very disappointing to hear that people say like, oh, you will like uh, three or five days and then Russian will occupy you. Nobody believed in us. No, no one expected Ukraine to still be a country sort of a week into Russia's invasion and no one who supports Shakhtar, let alone a wider footballing world, thought that Shakhtar would be anywhere other than fourth in their, in their group. So there was that totally unmanufactured um, parallel stories going at the same time. Yeah, one thing actually that really strikes me looking back is that I think one of the ideas with this podcast was we'll be sort of telling the stories of the ups and downs of the war through the football, but actually the the mood of the Ukrainian people, whether that be Shakhtar players or the academy, was kind of almost always the same. Like there was a day when I was in Croatia, I think there had been this huge advance from the Ukrainian army. And I kind of said, you know, this is great, isn't it? And they sort of said, well, you know, we've seen all this before and everything just seems to get worse. And that was proven right a month later when when me and Adam met in Warsaw and he was meant to go to Kiev when uh, it was a very bad day. And people just seemed to be very level and kind of always expect the worst and are often proven right, frankly. Yeah, but I also remember that that weekend before they played Real Madrid at home. It, there was the and this explo- was the week where you were meant to be going into Ukraine. In, into, into Ukraine. And there was the explosion at, at the Crimea Bridge. And I remember getting to to meet with the team, I think it was maybe the Sunday evening or the Monday, that the mood amongst people from the club was really uplifting because there'd been this explosion at Crimea Bridge. It was like Ukraine's got one over on Russia, even though Ukraine, I don't think, has actually ever claimed responsibility for that explosion at the Crimea Bridge. But there was people were sharing memes about it. It was it felt like a positive moment in the war. I do remember someone from the club saying to me, there's going to be a backlash. Something's going to happen in the next few days. And then clearly, you know, you wake up the next morning and it was, you know, it was the first time for five or six months that anything had really happened in Kiev. I mean, you really can't underestimate, overestimate just how surprising it was and shocking it was when Kiev was the subject of bombs again. And it wasn't just military infrastructure. It was playgrounds and it was uh, university buildings and railway stations. Yes, I'm really interested actually about that episode, your perspective in particular, Adam, what emotions you had because... So on the way out to Poland, I would expect that you were maybe nervous about the fact that you were heading into a war-torn country. And then just how those emotions changed when you realised that wasn't going to be the case. Leading up to it, I was quite relaxed about it because, as I say, nothing had really happened in Kiev for five or six months. But I, I do remember going into the team hotel that morning and feeling very, very nervous, quite fraudulent and feeling quite guilty about like going up to the people from Shakhtar who were traveling in and out of Ukraine every week and saying to them, actually, guys, there's been a few strikes today and we can't go. But it was, yeah, it was frustrating because also you know, you've heard so much about this country, you start to care quite a lot about this country. And there were things that 
I wanted to see. I wanted to see like their offices. I wanted to see the women's team in more detail, what, like the kind of facilities that they have and things like that. There were certain places that had really been affected by the war that they were going to take us to. But in the end, it just wasn't possible. Do you want to go to Ukraine? Yeah, at some point. I mean, I think Yuri said at the end of um, the last episode that, you know, for him, it'll feel like the war's over when Shakhtar play against their big rivals, Dinamo Kiev in Donetsk. And he ends that episode saying, you know, I, I hope we will be there. I hope you will be there as well. And he hopes that all of you that have listened will be there as well. I've actually been to a game many years ago in, in Kiev at the uh, Dynamo Europa League game in about 2015. And my main memory is it was February. And there's a whole stand of just blokes that were topless through the sort of sleet. Sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> <laughs> well, one person who has been going in and out of Ukraine uh, since this war began is uh, Jakub Parasinski. He's the host of the Powerlines podcast and Adam and Joey had a chance to speak with him earlier. Jakob, to start with, could you just give us an idea of what, what your role has been in Ukrainian media over the last few years and also a sense of what the Powerlines podcast is for those who aren't familiar with it? The idea behind Powerlines is that Ukraine might seem as a bit of a peripheral country for a lot of people, except you know when something goes horribly wrong and it's in the global headlines. Um, but you actually see a lot of Ukraine, um, and it plays a huge role in a lot of global events, whether it's, you know, a global oligarchy, the Trump presidency, the rise of tech titans. All of these stories have a, a have a piece of Ukraine in them. And that's what we explore with power lines. It's sort of how stories that start in Ukraine impact the global business, political, social trends. And obviously our podcast is, I suppose, the convergence of sports and global politics, right? Because it's tracking what happened to the Ukrainian football club Shakhtar Donetsk, I suppose going back to 2014, but also in particular since the full-scale invasion earlier this year. Can you give an idea of what you feel this year in particular, the role of sport has been in Ukraine and how it's maybe been used or as a tool by the President Volodymyr Zelensky as well? I think if we're just looking at this year in particular, what you need to understand is that every single aspect of life in Ukraine has been subordinated to the war effort um, to a, le- a lesser or greater extent. But essentially, you know, it doesn't matter whether you were a, a TikToker, a footballer, a, um, you know, an accountant or whatever it was that you were doing before February 24 at least a part of your life has now been directed towards supporting the country, supporting the war effort, whether it's a lot of people who have joined the territorial defense forces or the army, or they're raising funds, or they're trying to keep global awareness about what is happening in Ukraine high. And I think you, in that sense, football is no exception, right? If you go back a little bit, things get I think a little bit more complicated. Shakhtar is a is an interesting choice to explore, but yeah, if we're talking about right now this year, that's probably it. Yeah, and do you think, and maybe we're overstretching it slightly in terms of how big an impact Shakhtar themselves have had during the Champions League this year when they're playing against Real Madrid and they nearly beat Real Madrid with a team of almost entirely Ukrainian players? Is there an argument that? they bring a kind of a visibility and level of engagement from otherwise difficult to access audiences across Europe, across the world that are seeing all of a sudden, you know, 10 Ukrainian players in the starting lineup 
taking on Real Madrid, that it gives that, I suppose, yeah, that visibility about the war effort in a, to a just slightly different audience. I, I think you're right. So one thing that, that I think the whole world has realized is that Ukrainians tend to be very good at communications. I think in the early uh, days of the war, I even heard someone throw around the, the term that Ukraine turned out to be a communication superpower. But in order to get your message across, you need to work across different audience groups and you need to work across different channels. And if we look at the global community of football fans, it's a large but very specific part of the global population. The fact that Shakhtar, amongst other you know, Ukrainian football teams, is able to bring visibility to the war, that is something that makes the war real or at least reaches audiences who aren't necessarily following the news on Twitter every day or reading all of the newspapers. And in a way, I would almost say it humanizes the war because it's somebody that they see on a regular basis. It's somebody that they maybe identify with or or have at least some kind of empathize with to some extent that is affected by the war. So I think, yes, these games have made a notable difference uh, in terms of reaching those audiences. Uh, Yakov, I think you've been in and out of Ukraine since the full invasion. Could you just give some insight into whether it's, I don't know, whether it's something you yourself have seen or uh, whether it's something that the Kiev Independent has reported? Is there any particular moment or story that has particularly stayed with you during this time? For me, the extent to which the war has affected children. Myself, I'm a dad of a two-year-old. Um, she's Ukrainian. And uh, while we live in London, you know, my wife's family, uh, part of it is still based in Ukraine, including with young kids. It's been quite heartbreaking to see just how terrible the impact has been on on families with young kids. Whenever the air sirens hit, you know, it's terrifying. They need to run indoors and hide between two walls because if a Russian missile strikes, you always want to have at least uh, two, two walls uh, between you and wherever the impact is coming from. School being on and off, uh, being held in bomb shelters or remotely, it's just absolutely devastating. And I think, yeah, for me, that's that's the one that really uh, tugs at the heartstrings, so to speak. Yeah. And just, and just finally, we, this podcast has been about Shakhtar Donetsk and absolutely fascinated in terms of this, this idea of what well, we called our podcast Away From Home and this idea of can... Shakhtar Donetsk as a football club realistically aspire to go home. How realistic do you think that is? So I think if we're looking at the military side of things, obviously right now Ukraine does seem to have the initiative. Things are going well, but it is extremely difficult, intense fighting. It is very bloody. Obviously, we hope that all of the territories that were occupied will be retaken. But Shakhtar Donetsk is in a particularly difficult situation because uh, its home has been occupied since 2014. Even assuming that the Donbass Arena is in Ukrainian hands, and hopefully this, this will happen soon, but let's say that, that this happens tomorrow, that doesn't mean that football in Ukraine can really return to its place quite so quickly. So certainly hoping that uh, Shakhtar's journey away from home will be as short as possible but the road ahead isn't exactly easy. Jakob, thank you so much for joining us. 
Can you just remind us how people can listen to Powerline's podcast, where they can find that, uh, how often you guys go out as well? Absolutely. So Powerlines is out weekly, wherever people listen to their podcasts, whether it's Apple, Spotify, or a host of other uh, platforms. You can also find us at kivindependent.com. That's K-Y-I-V, independent.com, as well as on messageher.com. And follow our Twitter, at PowerLinesPod. Brilliant. Jakob, thank you so much. No, yeah, that was Adam and Joe with Jacob Parasinski from the Power Lines podcast. You make podcasts all day, you're very good at it, but you don't usually do this kind of big documentary thing. How has it been for you at, at the other end of things here in London, stitching everything together, doing a brilliant job? It's been very immersive because basically uh, the amount of time has been a lot shorter than what you might get for um, other things. So it means that I've kind of... I've been so immersed in the story that I've forgotten what's going on in, in football elsewhere. But a, such a human interest story from the off, I realised that this is a story that isn't for football fans. It's for everybody. These are real people. And if we can make it in such a way that we can access an audience that The Athletic doesn't traditionally get, because why would you listen to a football podcast if you don't like football? That for me has been the real key is just to get these stories, the people who've been so vulnerable with us and get as many people as possible to hear you know the truth of what's gone on in Ukraine and what has happened and basically put a voice to the numbers the statistics that we've become fatigued of because that's unfortunately what happens and hopefully this has helped humanize what is a a devastating conflict. I, I think that's a massive point isn't it the war fatigue element like when you first see bombs dropping on a European capital in February and March, you kind of like can't take your eyes off it. And I remember like every night BBC News at 10 or any other news channel would just have those huge crews every night from Kiev. And obviously a lot of them still have people stationed out there, but it would be where the show is presented from. It would be, it would be the absolute heart of what everyone was talking about. And then it just like bit by bit, it just becomes so normal. And so it's like you wake up, you see something on the news, you're like, oh, it's that thing happening in Ukraine again. In Ukraine again. Even when I was in Poland last week for the final game and turned on the Polish news in the hotel room in the morning and he saw these Ukraine, like queues and queues of Ukrainians queuing for water bottles, like for, to fill up their water bottles because there have been water shortages. And you're like, how is that happening? Like just because I'm in Warsaw, like just over there. And hopefully, you know, these very, very human stories make it more relatable and accessible uh, for people as well. Mm. Joey, I wanted to actually ask you, you have spoken to the academy out in Croatia. You spoke to Ilya in Warsaw, who was the uh, child who's lost both his parents during the war. And, and also one of the first voices we hear in the background, actually, are the captain, uh, Tara Stepanenko. We hear his children. Now, I think they are they, scared too. What was the sentiment around the children? Was there any sort of particular emotion, any fear that you picked up when you were having these conversations? Yes, I think with the boys in Croatia, it was frankly quite sad. It's a stunning place split. In many respects, it's exciting. You're away from home, you're with your mates, you're playing football in a beautiful, sunny country. But they are glued to the war and the news and they all have, if not fathers, uncles, family friends, mothers who are, who are there and, and they're worried about them dying every day. And they are scrolling on their phones all the time. And it feels like, you know, they've had to grow up far too quickly. Any distraction from the war is only going to be very brief. 
Um, it really struck me in the second episode, Frane, the wonderful Croatian man who helped them so much, said about the, the day they went to Dubrovnik and the saddest moment was how just upset they were on that bus because there'd been the, the strike on Venezia that day. It just seems so unfair that those kids have to grow up so quickly. And also he talks about his experience, I suppose, growing up in Croatia and the post-traumatic stress disorder of, I suppose, people who had been maybe on the front line, but also just like growing up during that environment, like the the long-term ramifications of this beyond what happens in the next six months, the year, feels like it's going to be such a relevant story during our lifetimes. Uh, one that really sticks in my mind is an interview that you and I did, Adam, which was, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't fit it into um, the podcast. It was um, Slava, uh, who was, I believe, former president of the Ukrainian FA. He had his um, 18-year-old son with him, who was... Um, Nikita. Yeah, Nikita picking up the translation points for him. But you talk about the impact it's going to be, and Nikita literally says... It harms our, our mental health, but uh, we should stay strong and uh, try somehow um, help our country win this war. That really just you know, brings it back just how the long-term effects that, of, that this war will have regardless of its outcome. When we were speaking to Slava because he was a former Ukrainian Football Federation president. He used to play football in Ukraine as well. And he, he'd been fighting on the front line. He'd suffered a shrapnel wound to his shoulder. But actually, I remember the day we interviewed him, I think, was that week where the bombs started in Kiev. He was one of the people that I was actually meant to meet out there. And I think actually halfway through our interview, the Wi-Fi just went off. So th that was kind of a very clear, very clear insight. And one thing that is hammered home uh, is just how young this team is. The talisman, in a way, of this team is Michaela Modric. And if you speak to anybody in this office that about this podcast um, or anyone with an interest in football, it has been about, oh, tell me about Modric, tell me about Modric. And Adam, uh, you've been speaking to everybody at Shakhtar about, you know, the potential of this young star. But just uh, let the less listener in about the price tag of Modric. That seems to have sort of gone up a little bit over the course of this uh, group stage. Yeah, and it was funny because... If I go back to maybe the first episode and the price tag at the start of that, it was probably pretty different to what it was by the end. I mean, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, right? Like based on what, on what we saw. He, he very nearly left the club in the summer because the English Premier League club, Brentford, agreed a fee with Shakhtar. I think it was around £25 million. And in the end, it just didn't happen through a variety of issues around uh, fees for agents and also... Um, there were some issues at the time with like making international payments and things like that. So that deal didn't happen. And then as the summer went on, Shakhtar started to take the view that, oh, if this guy does quite well in the Champions League, that valuation might really increase. And they persuaded him as well that he, you know, the exposure could be good for him. And particularly if he proves himself in these circumstances, right? Because, you know, any club at the moment watching this must be thinking, God, this is what he's doing when he's barely having a day of recovery in between games. What could he do in a perfect environment? They're now asking for around 100 million euros for him, which would obviously be a, by far a record for a Ukrainian player. The challenge for them is how, what do you do with that money, right? You get 100 million for Mudrik, fine, but you can't really recruit foreign players to replace them. And you could then talk about, okay, we're going to invest it into academy infrastructure. Well, where, right? Because you can't go to Donetsk. They don't really want to make a base in Kiev and Lviv because it's not where they're from. 
so you, it's a, it's a really difficult thing, and it's why you know something we mentioned in the last episode as well. Very, like, there's a lot of uncertainty about how this club moves forward. A lot of uncertainty with the war and with what the rest of the season looks like for Shakhtar. At the time of recording, we know that they'll face Juan next in the last 32 of the Europa League. But we're coming to the end now and there's so much more that we could talk about. And I hope that this has given a little insight into how some of the stories behind the podcast. But I wanted to end by asking you both um, and Joey, do go first. But can can you answer what's the one thing that's going to stay with you, whether it's an emotion match when you think of away from home? That's the thing that leaps out first. I think it's that football can be this brilliant distraction. And Alexander Zubkov said this to me. People in the away end in Glasgow said this to me, that your life is pretty horrible People you know might be getting killed, but for two hours you're really not thinking about that because football is so exciting. And I don't think there's many other things in the world that can do that. When you come to the pitch, uh, everything is changed. Only only on the pitch you forgot everything and you concentrate only on the game. And Adam? I would say the children that Joey spoke to are found incredibly moving. Every time I hear that little bit from episode two where you have one kid saying, Putin bad. And another kid just saying, It's true. It's found incredibly sort of simple and enlightening. And I suppose we could also probably give the last word to the lovely Irina Kozyupa, who was being so helpful to us as a journalist throughout this from Ukraine. And I asked her what her dream is for everybody in Ukraine as well. And this is what she said. I'm sure it's uh, now the main goal, main dream for everybody in Ukraine, like main wish is just to have peaceful sky, no war. And I think we would be very, very happy after that happened. We believe in that. No one don't know when exactly, but uh, for sure now we appreciate life much more better than, than before. Away From Home is an Athletic Media Company production. It was presented by Adam Crafton, Joey Durso and Abby Patterson, with additional production by Mike Stavrou. For more on this story and to get access to every football story that matters, head to theathletic.com forward slash away from home.